welcome to another exciting episode of the Critical Education Theory series on the New Discourses podcast that I've been slowly trying to work through. Um, It's going to be big and long and complicated because I'm so bogged down right now in Paulo Freire and what Paulo Freire is opening up for me and making sure we understand what's happened in education is so important that we are going to linger and go through his books in tremendous detail, or some of his books anyway. And so if you recall, we're working our way through the last two episodes of this podcast went through chapters one and two. And then chapters three and four of the book, The Politics of Education. And um, this was his breakout book in the United States, published in 1985, pushed by the activist educator Henry Giroux, who is in a sense Paulo Freire. If you think of Paulo Freire as a a prophet, Henry Giroux is his evangelist. And so he pushed uh, Freire into the American and North American education scene very significantly. and so we're working our way through it. Actually, the last four episodes of this series is uh, that are specifically about this book have, have, have tried to go through this. We spent two episodes going through the introduction, an episode on chapters one and two, an episode on chapters three and four. Now we're going to actually just read chapter five and go through because it's a weird little different one. Chapter six, I'll go through next. And it looks like I'm going to have to break chapter six itself into two separate episodes. And this will probably be the case for seven, eight, and nine as well. And then after that, the book's actually, in my opinion, not that interesting, though I'll read through it again and make sure I'm not missing anything to tidy up. Then we can switch over to Paulo Freire's other book, uh, the famous one, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. But this book is very uh, revelatory. It's very explanatory, and it's really helpful to understand. And like I'm trying to convince people now, our entire educational model is Freirean. It is Paulo Freire's model translated into identity Marxism. And so the culturally responsive pedagogy, for example, of or culturally relevant pedagogy of Gloria Ladson Billings from 1995, which I did an episode on that in this series as well. I read the original 1995 paper is literally a repackaging of this Freirean model into the cultural domain, which is to say the identity cultural domain, which is to say identity politics reconstrued as cultural Marxism. And this all becomes really clear when you understand Freire. If you under, if you know what culturally responsive pedagogy is or relevant pedagogy is, if you listen to that episode of the podcast and then you look at this, Freire and stuff, you're like, oh, okay, it's exactly the same thing. What Freire is also doing is a perfect, and we'll we'll really discuss this in our discussion of chapter six of this book in the next couple of episodes, is it's a perfect repackaging of Marxist theory into education, which I think I can make it very simple and very illuminating. So stay tuned for those episodes. In the previous episodes, four episodes regarding this book, I've made the case very clearly that what we also see in Freire making him so important and why I did this prophet evangelist thing is because he's really a religious figure. He is very much a prophet of the Marxian theology. And of course, if you remember, I started this book and then I said, I can't go further in this book until we take a hiatus and go study Marxism as a theology and then come back to this. And so understanding him as a religious figure in the theology of Marxism, really kind of a renewer of the theology of Marxism as it hit kind of a stuck spot uh, with the end of kind of the critical Marxist movement from the 60s, 50s, I guess 40s, really 50s and 60s, 
the so-called neo-Marxism, and then the postmodern movement doing its own strange thing. Freire kind of combines elements of a lot of these things. Giroux combines them even further. Again, he's like Freire's evangelist, and I mean that quite literally in the New Testament sense, uh, like Jesus versus Paul. And so I'm not trying to say that Freire's like Jesus, but we will hear. We actually have heard, and we'll hear more that in the previous chapters of this book that that Freire's model, like George Lukács' description of his own cultural Marxism from the 1920s, is based on a uh, messianic vision, a permanent prophetic vision. He calls it in this book. He also says that it's got. I say it's through Iron Law of Woke Projection that he characterizes it as, characterizes his view of education as messianic. So he says everybody else is being a messiah, not us. But I think he's actually giving away that he's got a messianic vision in Marxism, which is what all, almost all of Marxism boils down to. And Lukács, before him, the father of cultural Marxism in a very meaningful sense, described his own work as having a messianic utopian aspiration and uh, relying on a messianic revolutionary vision for uh, society. And so this was literally how he characterized his own work and his own words looking back. And so I see this, we talked about it in the previous couple of episodes and Freire as well. So he's this kind of messiah, Marxist messiah of the educational theory. And I think he reframed things in a very crucial way that make us understand what woke is. So we have to actually pay attention. This chapter five is very strange though, because this is a book about education. It's called The Politics of Education. And this chapter is about social work, which seems out of place. Now, to be fair, the book is a collection of essays that he lightly edited and cobbled together. And, um, but it's somewhat out of place because so far the first four chapters have really been about education. And then the chapters six going forward is actually chapter six is very much about his education model. And then going forward from there, it gets increasingly explicitly religious because Freire also saw himself as a significant figure in liberation theology, which is Marxism posing as Catholicism, which is very big in South America where it was installed for that purpose by the communist party. Uh, in the 30s and 40s, and had kind of come to fruit by the 50s and 60s, 60s in particular, when Ferrari was putting these ideas together. And then this, like I said, Pedagogy of the Oppressed was in the 70s, early 70s, and then this book was 85, kind of looking back, and these essays had been in the intervening decades kind of cobbled together. So it gets increasingly religious to the point where the, when I mentioned chapters, you know, eight and nine are explicitly theological. I mean, the title of them is that they're theological. But this chapter is about social work. And so the role of the social worker in all of this, which is a very strange thing. So you can imagine social workers being in the schools, I suppose. Um, of course, he's talking in this book primarily about adult literacy education. So social workers are going to integrate with this program and his vision. That's how it kind of fits in. But when we think about what's happening in the past two years, what are they saying? Get rid of the police, defund the police, and send in who? The social workers. Replace things with social workers. Why? Well, partly because of Paulo Freire and also partly because of the way that Marxists think about things, which is essentially that if you get people's material conditions right, but also their cultural conditions right now in the structural modern sense, as they call it, if you get their conditions right, then they won't be criminals. They're criminals because they don't have enough to eat. They're criminals because they live in, a, in neighborhoods where they don't know not to be criminals. We hear these arguments made. We hear these arguments made. So the idea is like if you get, you don't need police, you need social workers to go teach them how to be social correctly. 
And if you teach them to be social correctly and you solve the problems of their material and social conditions, then there would be no crime. There'd be no criminals. And in fact, this goes so far that if the social conditions and thus the social relations are made perfect, then all the problems will go away. This is the doctrine of material and structural determinism. And so this is why you see them making idiotic claims to replace police with social workers and doing things like paying criminals not to do crime because they believe that if they just get those conditions right, then nobody would do, nobody wants to be a criminal. Nobody wants to do all this stuff, which they don't understand the nature of crime really. And the, nobody wanted to be poor. Nobody wanted to do any of this. So if you just get those conditions right, then nobody would be a criminal. So you replace the police with social workers. So social workers hold a very important piece of the puzzle of this Marxist thing, but you, of course, also would have social workers embedded within the schools. What do you think the social and emotional learning thing is? Who's going to run that? Well, counselors and masters of social work. So master social workers are going to be instrumental in designing the social emotional learning components that are being brought into the schools and misapplied by teachers who are going to be amateur social workers. And so what Freire's banging on about here is the creation of teacher as social worker, which is really concerning, especially because his view of literacy, as we have come to understand, is or of learning, therefore, is an expanded one to where you're not just becoming literate in a sense of being able to read and write the word. You're also becoming literate politically so that when you read and write and speak the word, as Freire's exact language, you also speak the world, which is definitely a religious commandment. In fact, it seems like it's straight out of the Bible which him being a a marxist which is an inversion of the bible and b a liberation theologian in orientation it makes it no surprise that he would say that you have to learn to speak the word so that you can speak the world into existence and we'll see and i think it's the seventh chapter but i have to read ahead further to figure out for sure that he's got this whole program where it's about how you speak the world and through a process of announcing and denouncing so you denounce the existing world while announcing the new world and that's the whole program. So it's a constant program of revolution through denouncing and announcing. And he says that you can't do that from a position of the dominant. You can only do that from a position of oppressed. And so the goal is to create teachers as social workers so that they teach not just how to actually do things like read, write, do math, science, history, etc., but so that they can adjust awareness of the social conditions, historical conditions, and create political and historical literacy, which is meaning that you become a Marxist. Historical literacy from a Marxist means that you are learning the history of material conditions as Marxists frame them so that you can understand your role in history, your position in history, and your role. The consciousness that they try to awaken isn't merely your class consciousness that you're oppressed, but rather also the oppressed's role in overturning society. We'll hear that in, in the chapter six stuff, especially when I start drawing off of Lukács, who made it very explicit in history and class consciousness. So there's actually a lot going on here. But again, the general idea here is a so teacher as social worker uh, is so important because that allows the teacher to give political literacy, not just, um, you know, technical or functional literacy. So basic literacy, I think is what I called it in the previous episode, technical literacy, we could call it instead, or uh, functional literacy, that being technical or basic literacy is I can actually read and write the words in front of me or that I wish to read and, or that I wish to, to write. And functional literacy is that you can connect meaning to that which you have read in a uh, effective way. You can derive the meaning from the written word. And a lot of people are technically literate or basic literate, but they are not functionally literate. But 
Freire isn't just talking about that. He's actually talking also about political literacy, literacy in terms of the entire, we'll hear this in chapter six, in terms of the whole, the totality. This is a very Marxian idea. It's all throughout Lukács. It's all throughout Marx. It's throughout Hegel that you can't understand the particulars without understanding the whole. So you can't understand the class without understanding the class's role in the whole of the trajectory of, of history, and in other words, getting history to arrive at communism through socialism and the role that the proletariat plays in awakening that. You, this is their vision. This is what education is supposed to be about. And so by making teachers into social workers who can raise that political consciousness even more effectively, you have even more going on uh, in that regard. So you have even more success in that program. So Chapter five of the politics of education is the social worker's role in the process of change. And it's hard. It was hard at first for me to connect this to education in the sense that we see it here in the West, because, again, he's talking about adult literacy. He's talking about adult peasants. And so intervening with social workers in the lives of adults is something one would see as kind of normal and expected. But social workers in, say, an elementary school doesn't. And then you remember social emotional learning is designed by social workers and psychologists who are woke and want to use it as a tool to, it's been redesigned, I should say, by these people. It probably was designed by good faith ones in the first place when it was under a model of personal responsibility. There's a four-hour episode outlining how that changed to a model that's called transformative, which is therefore Marxist, because transformative means Marxist. Uh, now, and so social workers are the ones designing the delivery mechanism. And we hear this, I think we'll hear it quite explicitly, as we read through this short chapter from The Politics of Education by Paulo Freire from 1985, chapter five, the social worker's role in the process of change. And he says, to understand the social worker's role, this is a very, he is very difficult in this chapter and some of the next chapter. To understand the social worker's role in the process of change, we should begin by reflecting on these very words that articulate our theme. So again, they're very obsessed with words. We brought this up in about a billion podcasts here now. These words, he says, show us the sum of their meaning. Our inward critical analysis will let us see the interaction of these terms as a genesis of structured thinking that incorporates a significant message. In leading us to a deeper meaning, there's always looking for the deeper meaning. Every woke word conceals an agenda. They always have baked politics into their language. And as a matter of fact, not only were the postmodernists with the deconstructive project of Jacques Derrida, for example, being kind of the most obvious and the obsession with discourses of Michel Foucault being another very obvious case uh, of bringing the, the Marxist worldview into words. That's really, in a sense, what the post-structuralist project does. The, often gets called postmodernism. And here, remember, we're technically in this series, we're following the long trajectory through the book, The Critical Turn in Education by Isaac Gotsman, which says that it, it turned in three stages, Marxist critique, then post-structuralist feminism, then uh, critical theories of race. In other words, the post-structuralism becomes very significant to how we change education. And that's how the Marxist theory gets into words. Critical race theory is how it gets into race. Critical gender theory is how it gets into gender and to a degree sexuality, uh, but especially gender. Queer theory, which could be called critical queer theory or critical sexuality theory, is how it gets into sex and sexuality, particularly it's sexuality Marxism is what queer theory is. And gender theory is gender Marxism and critical race theory is race Marxism. That's how you get into race, sex, gender, sexuality, etc. Okay. Well, postmodernism is how you get it into language, into words. And then 
Freire is how you get it into the idea of knowledge, epistemology. This is all very complicated, it seems, but it's not that hard. You have one basic concept, which is Marxism, that's being repackaged in lots of different domains. And Freire is repackaging it in the sense of knowledge itself. And so what he's focusing on here is that the, what you see in this kind of 19, this is 1985, so the postmodernists would have informed him. He, in, in fact, quotes a guy named Louis Althusser, who was a French structuralist and who was the PhD advisor to Michel Foucault and who was uh, a colleague of Jacques Derrida. So he's aware of that line, these lines of thought that language conceals the power structure. So you can actually find, that's the postmodern or post-structuralist idea, you can actually find the Marxist theory in words, in language. So there's a deeper meaning to everything. And then there's a, there's, you can find it in knowledge as well. There's a deeper meaning there as well. So he, he's fo they're always going to be focused on the deeper meaning, which is the political relevance of the context and every other thing and how things are taught and what's going to be taught and so on. So in leading us to a deeper meaning, he says, our inward and critical analysis ought to surpass any notion of a simplistic overview that repeatedly leaves us on the surface of whatever we discuss. In the critical view we are here defending, the act of looking implies another, that of admiring. Now, admiring is in scare quotes, and it has a footnote that says in the next chapter we're going to talk a lot about what we mean by admire. Admiring doesn't mean admiring like I admire you know, Neil Armstrong for going to the moon, or I admire uh, my, you know, this person for all of his accomplishments, or I admire uh, like admiration like you would have for, you know, a love interest or your wife or your spouse or whatever else. Um, admiring here has a different meaning. And I'll pop down to the footnote quickly to read what he says about it, but it's really complicated. The footnote says, read it in chapter six. And I, I was on a plane yesterday rereading the admiration thing over and over and over again. And it's like, this literally doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, well, it does, but it's super complicated. I had to read it like four times to kind of understand it. Uh, to admire, this is from chapter six, is to objectify the not I. It is a dialectical operation that characterizes man as man, differentiating him from the animal. It is directly associated with the creative dimension of his language. To admire implies that man stands over against his not I in order to understand it. For this reason, there is no act of knowing without ad admiration of the object to be known. So, what admiration means is what Hegel called speculation, which is to look as though you're looking into a mirror that basically reflects theory. And so he's saying, in the critical view that we are here defending, the act of looking implies another that of admiring, which is speculation in the way that Hegel meant it, but slightly modified for whatever complicated purposes that he has. So it's your ability to kind of remove yourself from it, from the situation, and reflect upon it as though from a distance, but also to reflect upon it against the ideal, which is what Hegel would have had to reflect upon it versus the history of material conditions in one's historical context as Marx would have it. So it means that you're trying to position yourself um, and seeing yourself as from the outside in terms of where you fall in the broader social thing, the social structure, I should say, not thing. And so he says we admire and in our looking deeply into what we admire, we look inward and from within this makes us see. And so what he's describing is Hegel's speculative philosophy. 
but he's using the term admire. And I would like to know what it says in Portuguese, to be honest with you, but I don't know if it would also be translated as reflect. But this is admiring like you would admire in a mirror, where the mirror is reflecting to you a greater totality or the totality and your place within it. Uh, so you see yourself in terms of what you're not. You see yourself in the not I. So that's the reflexive process of praxis that he's really diving into here. It's the speculative process at the heart of the dialectic that Hegel described to kind of just place him. So it's a dialectical faith. He says, in our naive view, our unarmed way of confronting reality, which is an interesting way to frame it. Remember also that Freire was a gigantic fan of Castro and of, more importantly, Che Guevara, who he said did a better job. Um, in the naive view, our unarmed way of confronting reality, we merely look, but we can't see because we don't admire what we look at in its intimacy, that which leads us to see what was purely looked at. So in other words, we don't see the context in which it exists as well. It's all this shit is, oh God, I hate these people. It is important then that we admire the words of our proposed theme doesn't that sound narcissistic and self-indulgent? So that in looking at them from the inside, we can recognize that they ought not to be dealt with as a mere cliché. This theme is not a slogan. It is a problem in itself and a challenge. While just looking at these words and so remaining in their periphery, we might limit ourselves to talking about their message as one of ready-made ideas. So everything has to be alive in the process of dialectical change is what he's actually saying. So remember, by the way, all he's trying to do is explain the words, the social worker's role in the process of change. And of course, that is, social worker as change agent, which is to say making your kid into change, change agents, which is the language you will see in some of their documentation in your school. And he's saying, what we have to do is make sure that it's not slogans. We're not saying change, 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 hope and change, and we're not doing it, that we're actually bringing it about. We can't do it just as slogans. We can't do it just as ready-made ideas. It has to be a living process that's actually deconstructing, disrupting, and dismantling that which is there, denouncing the world we're in, while announcing a new world, which is what we'll see in chapter 7. I think it's 7, it might be 8. And critically and inwardly analyzing this message, we have a chance to break down its constituent parts. Dividing the totality into its components enables us to return to the totality with a more in-depth comprehension of its meaning. And so this is, again, that Hegelian holism or Marxian holism. The parts can only be understood in terms of the whole. In other words, the part is in a dialectical relationship to the whole, and you can only understand the two as they are opposed to one another. What Lukács talks about in History and Class Consciousness is that the parts, the, the working class, is going to have short-term immediate interests and long-term uh, interests in liberation and overthrowing the system. In other words, he's saying overthrowing the system is going to be bad for you in the short term, but good for you in the long term. And so you want to raise the consciousness of that and the consciousness of the long-term role and benefit. And so he's, this is what's kind of being invoked here, dividing the totality into its components, that's parts and whole, enables us to return to the totality, in other words, the big picture, which is to get to Marxism, or to communism, I should say, with a more in-depth comprehension of its meaning. So you're going to understand your context in terms of the entire stream of history that ends in communism if you awaken to your conscious role, because Marxism can really be summarized as one simple idea. Man makes history by 
all of his activity that he does, and he does it mostly unconsciously, kind of natural selection. It's just changing as we go along. People are making decisions, but they don't have the big picture view. Then Marx comes along with a scientific theory of history or philosophy of history, first scientific study of history, what he called the Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus, which is a scientific socialism. The, and so he has the, the purpose of history is to get to global communism by awakening a social consciousness and a social man who needs to live with the social, within a society that produces a social consciousness and facilitates a social consciousness and serves a social consciousness. In other words, a total communist collective. And that totality is the way you must understand each particular part. And so for Marx, the point is society evolves um, through natural selection and kind of randomness, unconscious change. And now the Marxist theory comes along so man can be made conscious. So now it can be directed by conscious change, which is why I told you in the previous episode that Marxism is inherently eugenicist. Marxism is inherently eugenicist. It is the direction of society to a desired teleological end by people who believe they know what that end is supposed to be, hence it's also Gnostic, that will set man free from the prison that he is of the randomness of Gavorfenheit flungness of the world, the Heidegger described Gnostic prison of the world. He can now become his own God, his own true son, direct the course of history to its final successful end, but only when he has consciousness of his role as a part in the whole and dialectical relationship to the whole. And so that's what, for it's just a simple little paragraph that doesn't sound like it means anything, but it means a whole effing lot. Dividing the totality into its component parts enable us, enables us to return to the totality with a more in-depth comprehension of its meaning. So, for example, that the communist utopia and the totality of history has a meaning has a meaning because we understand the part, the proletariat's role in creating it. That is what he's saying here. And like I said, this is inherently eugenicist because man directs society. The Marxist belief is that man makes society, but society in turn makes man, who then makes more society, who then in turn ma- which then in turn makes man, so on and so forth. And that's a blind process until the conscious take it over. And then man is making society into a socialist hellhole that will consciously make man into the socialist direction. In other words, you are doing conscious eugenics, eugenics to create what? Herbert Marcuse called a biological foundation for socialism in his essay on liberation in 1969 by interjecting the morality until people see it as a level of vital needs. That's literally the freaking program. It is eugenics, not the eugenics like, oh, let's round up all the people who look or act or speak or whatever this way and kill them or prevent them from breeding or sterilize them or whatever else, but a different kind of soft social cultural eugenics where this meat, well, you know what's going to happen in practice, of course, when you can't just coerce people into doing things because um, life is actually messy. What you have is this vision that if we can, if they can seize the means of the production of society, then they can direct the direction of society through their consciousness, and that consciousness will therefore direct the development of man into what they want man to be, which is socialist, and that is eugenics. It is inherently eugenics. I didn't give the argument very well on the previous episode, but that's the argument. And that's what he's drawing upon when he says this. Dividing the totality into its components, that's the parts that are in dialectical relationship to the whole, enables us to return to the totality with a more in-depth 
comprehension of its meaning. How do you get there? Through admiration, which is what Hegel said. You get there through speculation, which is the same thing, seeing oneself as in a reflection of a mirror. But in the mirror, you see yourself as the not I. You are not your reflection. You see it as an object outside of yourself, whereas your own vision of yourself is inside your head. Get it yet? Admiring, looking inward, dividing the totality so we can return to look at what's admired, that is, to move toward the totality and return from return from it to its parts. These can be separate acts only when the mind has to think abstractly to reach what's concrete. There's your Hegel again. Abstract negation concrete. It's literally Hegel's dialectic. And so these can be separate acts only when the mind has to think abstractly to reach what's concrete. What's concrete is supposed to be what's real in the world. But it's in the place of the synthetic in terms of the way that Kant put forth the dialectic, the resolution to the contradiction that is. And so what they call, what the Marxists and the Hegelians call the concrete is not the concrete. It is the synthetic understanding created through the dialectical process, which is why they mistake their theories for reality, which is why literally their definition of truth is that which makes this true, which is why the person... And then 2020, when I accidentally trolled these people into defending 2 plus 2 equals 5, Shraddha Sharud, or Sharude, maybe, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, uh, who is a deputy education uh, officer at the state level in the state of Washington, said her ethno-mathematics program is often criticized for wanting to make 2 plus 2 equals 5, and her answer wasn't why that's not true. Her reply wasn't why this is not true. Her reply was, how can we make this into a true statement? In other words, how can we take that which is abstract, 2 plus 2 equals 5, and make it concrete? Right? Hegel. Reproduced here, now, in different language, sort of. And the whole admiring thing is Hegel. Again, it's his speculation repackaged into a new word, which is to look into a mirror and see yourself as not you, as see yourself as an object outside of yourself, as the reflection in the mirror. And then the pun of speculating upon what that implies about you or whatever, or admiring. I bet you in, in Portuguese that there's a tighter linguistic connection between admiring and speculating because we don't use speculating that way in modern English. The translator probably went this way, but I don't know. I don't have the Portuguese version and I don't read Portuguese anyway. So he says, admiring, looking inward, dividing the totality so we can return to look at what's admired, that is, to move toward the totality and return from it to its parts, these can be separate acts only when the mind has to think abstractly to reach what's concrete. In reality, these are acts that mutually involve one another. So if there was any doubt when I said that this whole thing is a Hegelian dialectical religion, and then when I say our whole education program is based in the Freirian program and the culturally, re re culturally relevant teaching is a recreation of the Freirian program and identity Marxist thought, if there was any doubt that I was correct when I was partly saying like saying that based on fact and partly intuiting it, here it is in literally black and white in an education manual. In fact, the education manual that changed the course of education in the way that I've said. By admiring these words, Freire tells us that involve a challenge a challenging theme, and by breaking down their components, we find that the term role is modified by a restrictive expression a noun in the possessive case, that delimits its extension, social worker. Here, though, there is a qualifying term, social, that's closely tied to one's comprehension of the term worker. Does this sound... 
He's supposed to tell you the social worker's role in the process of change, and all he's done so far is spend a page and a half trying to break down what it means when you put the word social in front of the word worker without without telling you anything more. Um, Because this is the kind of linguistic jerking off that these people do endlessly to hide the fact of what they're really doing, which is that they're installing the Hegelian systematic theology, not philosophy, of dialectical processes as reinterpreted through Marx to become an activist program for seizing power. That's all this boils down to. They have installed this Hegelian Marxian religion into the schools, and nobody realizes it because it's written in paragraphs that read like this. The subunity of the general structure of one phrase, the role of the social worker, is linked to the second phrase in the process of change. He's just breaking down. Remember, he thinks he's all, I bet you he thinks he's so clever because this is a book about learning to read. This is a book about literacy. So this is how you really study what these phrases mean. So you can't just on the surface read the social worker's role in the process of change. You have to understand that the word worker is modified by the word social and that's key. And then role is then therefore defined in terms of that. It's modified by a restrictive expression, the noun, a noun in the possessive case social worker's role. And then that has to be linked through the general structure of one phrase to a second phrase in the process of change, which tells you the telos, the purpose, which according to the meaning and their message represents where the role is met. In other words, the purpose, the telos, through the preposition in. That is the most worthless two paragraphs in the entire universe. But what it tells you is that he's taking the all that crap about admiring and totality and blah, 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 that just sounds like total nonsense is this isn't gobbledygook, people. This isn't word salad. This is complicated linguistic magic spells that hide the fact of what they're really doing. What they're saying is that you have to have your consciousness of your role in the process of change to a particular end. That end is communism. Lukács says the exact same thing. The point of class consciousness isn't to awaken merely the fact that you aware you're aware of your class position and the fact that it's oppressed, but also the class's role in the process of creating the end of history, the tele- the teleological part, where the role is met through the preposition in in the process of change. So it sounds like just complicated gobbledygook, but what he's saying is you absolutely have to become a Marxist activist. That's the whole point. That's what social workers are really for. It is to do work or the work, to do the work in the process of change. But change has to be understood in terms of the whole, not in terms of the part. You see the part as a part of the whole, and the whole is to create the substantive transformative change to a Marxist society. It sounds complicated, but it's not. I know it sounds so freaking complicated, but it's not. What it means is Everything has to be about making you a Marxist. When I gave that lecture in Tampa, and you guys can go look at that, my lecture series in Tampa, and the fourth out of the five, I know you're going to have to go do some digging, is what is the point of critical race theory? Or if you go read Race Marxism, and it's the fifth chapter, uh, fourth lecture, fifth chapter of Race Marxism, critical race praxis, what's it actually about? This is where you see it, that the whole point is to raise the consciousness. The whole point is to create the activist. And the activist is the person who understands not just that they're in an oppressed situation, but that they have to leverage, they have the unique perspective, the unique positionality, the unique voice of color to leverage that position 
their subjectivity. Remember, Kimberly Crenshaw said that I am black is an anchor of subjectivity and a site of a meaningful politic of identity. To leverage that position to get to the point of the whole process, the where the role of change is met, a role of change agent is met, and that is at communism. So it sounds really complicated, but it means everything has to be torqued to the purpose of raising consciousness, including the consciousness of being an activist to achieve communism. That's all all that apparent gobbledygook meant. But they have to make it sound really deep or nobody would accept it because it's obviously preposterous. It's obviously agenda-driven, and it's obviously a eschatological religion which would get them burned right out of everything if people knew it was an obvious eschatological religion where the belief is that the human beings who seize the means of production induce the rapture called revolution and manage the tribulation, which is called socialism, so that the kingdom will arrive under their terms because God's not coming. Man is the only God. Man is the true son that revolves around himself, according to Marx, 1844, in his critique of Hegel's philosophy of the right. It all comes together very tightly and very simply. In this way, we must grasp, he says, the f- by the way, let me hesitate. This is what, when I say the, this is what Freirean education is, and this is what I'm saying they have done. Freire repackaged the entire Marxist program into the educational paradigm, whether the oppressed and, and uh, privileged anti, respectively. I guess the privileged and the oppressed are literate and illiterate, which, remember, means socially, politically, historically literate in Marxist terms versus illiterate. Okay? And he's, what he's actually saying is that the people who society considers literate or educated are falsely literate and falsely educated because they're only literate and educated under the terms of the dominant society. And so you have to overthrow that by having actual uh, proletarian education literacy rising up and overthrowing it from beneath. So that's why you're focusing on the, the education of the illiterates. In our entire education system model, it's just a repackaging of the Marxist theory in total on the concept of knowledge. That's all Freire's doing on the concept of being educated or literate, okay? So this isn't hard, but it's deep. So he says, in this way, we must grasp the full complexity of this message. Critically speaking, for anything to be, it has to be in the process of being. There's your, there is no Hegel's fundamental dialectic. What was it? There is being and there is nothing. They're not opposites, they're in dialectical tension with one another. That which is, that bees, that which is, is in the process of, is in a process of uh, shifting from, in order to get from nothing to something, from, from nothing to being, it goes through a process of becoming. It became. It went from, there was nothing, and then there was something, and it must have become, to become that. So everything's in the process of becoming, and that's why everything has to be everything's dialectically changing. Everything's becoming. The Hegelian view is in the end, the becoming arrives, the eschaton is immunitized or realized when the absolute being realizes itself and being is fully instantiated. And at the end of the process, at the end of what I've also called the communist rainbow, that's when the stateless classist utopia arrives. So this is the full complexity of the message. What characterizes it, critically speaking, Marxistly speaking, for anything to be, it has to be in the process of being. What becoming? What characterizes the social structure is, in fact, neither change nor permanence, but the duration of the contradiction between both of these. 
given that the one given that one predominates over the other as i just explained although there is a dialectic between the remember this is a chapter about social workers right although there is a dialectic between the infrastructure and the superstructure that's where the structure comes from if the say superstructure is uh white people or white who have the yeah white whites who have access to whiteness people who have access to whiteness so whites white adjacents race traders you know that kind of thing people are acting white and then these the infrastructure is um people of color and especially blacks then there's a structure in the created by the dialectic between the superstructure and the infrastructure there's a structure and that structure is racism structural racism systemic racism and there is race marxism in a nutshell Although there is a dialectic between the infrastructure and the superstructure, between the illiterate and the literate, there is no permanence of permanence or change of change in the social structure, but the aim of preserving the social structure contradicts the effort to change it. This is basically just a sloppy repackaging, a guru-style repackaging of Lukács' argument in History and Class Consciousness, where he's talking about the complicated nature. It's really fortuitous, or my religious friends would say providential, that I by chance got sick of reading this damn book and started reading History and Class Consciousness while I was in the middle of reading this book for like the third time through. And so I'm like putting these two things together. Like this is just a repackaging of George Lukács. This, all this is. And remember, George Lukács was the deputy... Uh, Commissar of Education in the Bela Kun regime, also known as the uh, Hungarian Soviet Republic, uh, in 1919, which didn't last very long. Education guy. Hmm, how about that? This is just a sloppy repackaging of that same idea that I've been saying, is that what you actually have is you have a class dynamic. And what Lukács argues is, and we'll hear this from, from Freire explicitly as well, is that the superstructure has basically all of the, its hands on all of the levers and the infrastructure can't change anything, really, unless they can figure out how to get the class consciousness, in turn, including their consciousness of how they're going to succeed in changing things and the role they play in the development of history by overthrowing the existing structure. And so there's this interplay between them, but the superstructure has their hands on all the levers. The infrastructure doesn't have their hands but he says there's no permanence of permanence so permanence isn't permanent itself because change is going to happen he says but there's no change of change in the social structure and it's just a complicated verbal repackaging of Lukács' argument that the proletariat has to actually become properly class conscious and class consciousness itself is a limitation unless it gets to the higher level where it understands its full role in the in the context of history um in order to be able to gain enough influence to be able to sway the structure, thus the superstructure of society, and the, thus destabilize things enough in order to create the revolution so that it can seize the means of production. But the aim, Freire tells us, of preserving the social structure contradicts the effort to change it. The aim of preserving contradicts the effort to change it. So the, the superstructure has the aim to preserve the status quo, the existing social structure. And that contradicts, that's dialectical, but creates the structure, uh, the effort to change it. So you have the revolutionaries and you have the reactionaries. That's their dichotomous false worldview. And the reactionaries want to keep the social structure and they're in dialectical contradiction or relationship to the revolutionaries who want to change it. And that is the dynamic. What Freire is saying is that's the dynamic where this has to play out. And he says, therefore, one cannot be a social worker and be like the educator who's a coldly neutral technician. 
to keep our options secret, to conceal them in the cobwebs of technique, or to disguise them by claiming neutrality does not constitute neutrality. Quite the contrary, it helps maintain the status quo. So in other words, to be a social worker, you actually have to be somebody who's inducing and awakening the consciousness because you can't play along or else you're complicit. Same dichotomy we always hear in all of Marxism, including up to the woke identity Marxism of today. Accordingly, he says, we need to clarify our political options through experience that is also political. It is naive to consider our role as abstract in a matrix of neutral methods and techniques for action that doesn't take place in a neutral reality. So what he's saying here is the role of the social worker in the process of change is to realize that the social worker is the change agent. It is somebody who is working on the social structure as a, to- as a totality with the long view of what that's supposed to create, which is the communism. And that is the role that we, the social worker can't just be like the educator that that doesn't understand that role. The social worker also has to be able to administer the political consciousness to the people that they are intervening with. And again, the roles of social worker, what's happening is that the role of social worker and educator are being blurred. And I'm telling you, that's what the social emotional learning infusion of today is doing. That is literally what's happening. The social worker's role and teacher's role are being blended together. And the point is that literacy or education isn't merely about being able to read, write, or be educated. It's about being politically educated as Marxists see it. It's about awakening what Antonio Gramsci referred to as a, uh, what did he call it, a working class, uh, working class intellectuals. Uh, people, in other words, who were, were, were the um, informed proletariat, the intellectuals of the proletariat who learn through what? Experience rather than through, you know, knowledge, which knowledge is the reproduction of the existing social structure. This is how Freire is going to have it. We'll hear more about this as I go further through chapter six. So if a social worker, he tells us, if a social worker chooses reactionary options, again, there's that dichotomy, reactionary or revolutionary. You either want to keep the existing system or you want to abolish it. Nothing in between. If you don't want to abolish the system, you must want to keep at least some of it. And therefore you're actually a reactionary. So everybody left of total social revolution, not left of Mao, like to- everybody left of anything, or sorry, every anybody right of anything, no matter, of, of, of the infinity point of leftism, anybody to the right of the infinity point of leftism is choosing reactionary. So there's only the accelerating slippery slope into further leftism or else you're a reactionary and that's bad. So if the social worker chooses reactionary options, his or her methodology and work will be oriented toward blocking change. Very simple. You're either on the right side of history that's revolutionary, the infinity point of leftism, or you're on the wrong side of history and you're a reactionary, which means your work is oriented toward blocking change because change for change's sake, the permanent revolution is the goal and is good. That's what their view is. Rather than perceiving the social worker's task as one by which through a critical common effort, reality unveils itself to him and to those with whom he works. He'll be preoccupied with mythicizing reality. That's, in other words, creating the ideology that justifies the maintenance of the status quo. Just repackaging Marx and Lukács here. Just as a cheap repackaging. Instead of developing opportunities for problem-posing to challenge her and the men and women with whom she should be communicating, that would be the, she's a social worker, and she's commuting, communicating with, you know, her, I don't even, clients, I don't know what they're called. Uh, patients, something like that, the people that social workers intervene with, 
Her tendency will be to favor welfare syndrome solutions. In short, through his or her actions and reactions, this type of social worker is motivated to assist in the normalization of the established order, which serves the power elite's interests. So what, what this person, what Freire is saying is that if a social worker doesn't go full revolutionary, isn't a full-blown Marxist, then it's a reactionary. And if that person's a reactionary, their goal is to block at least some social change. And so in the process, they will create a mythicized reality uh, the ideology that justifies why the existing society should exist at all and should be maintained. And so rather than positioning themselves as somebody who's ministering the Marxist consciousness to her charges, she instead will try to come up with ameliorative solutions like it says welfare syndrome solutions, which is to say um, to to, to come in and, uh, well, it says well, to favor welfare, and then it's actually a, it's a end dash. So not welfare syndrome, it's not a dash or a hyphen, I mean, uh, to favor welfare, which are syndrome solutions, okay? So what he's saying is that you will actually try to reproduce the problem because what you'll do is you'll like try to figure out coping mechanisms, figure out working strategies to get people to integrate back into the society. To It's the exact same thing he was talking about literacy. If you just teach people to read, some of them are not actually going to get jobs, but some of them will. And then those people have betrayed the solidarity because they became successful. It's that same mentality of why you have to basically stay down and be a part of the, the oppressed and then lean into your oppression more and more and more. So if the social worker is actually helping people, in other words, they're actually reproducing and creating more of the problem. Because in short, through his or her actions and reactions, this type of social worker is motivated to assist in the normalization of the established order, which serves the power elite's interest. So you're not actually helping. You're, it's a total iron law of projection inversion. Yet again, you're enabling people who are in a position of dependency to stay dependent in a system that creates dependency or to escape it and become part of the dependency-making power elite uh, by becoming successful which just reproduces a system, which you have to think in terms of the totality. That's the admiring thing that he was talking about, the speculating thing, rather than to gain the consciousness to overthrow the whole thing and seize the means of production in the hands of these oppressed people, or in this case, the illiterates. To the social worker who chooses this option, sorry, the social worker who chooses this option can and almost always tries to disguise it. So now... We have some conspiracy theory going on here, appearing to be for change and thus keeping to a quasi-transformation, which is one way not to change. Does this not sound exactly like what you hear about the anti-racism and the good white narrative from critical race theory and Robin D'Angelo? The white person who chooses this option can and almost always does, sorry, can and almost always tries to disguise that fact, appearing to be... Uh, for racial justice and then keeping to a quasi-transformation, which is one way to position oneself as a good white and not to change and to maintain one's racism. Good white progressives or good white people or white liberals do the most daily damage to people of color because they are people who think they get it and don't have to do the racial work. Same, 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 same. The social worker who chooses this option can and almost always tries to disguise it. They think that they're helping, but really they're upholding the system. And that means they're a bad ally, and their allyship wasn't good enough, so they have to do better. Sound familiar? One of the, and Remember, this is the model. The social worker and the educator are becoming one thing here. 
because the goal is to create social and political literacy, or what Marxists call historical literacy, as opposed to actual competence in the educational program. And again, this is the entire North American education program is based off of this crackpot Marxist, and this is what's actually going on, and this is why this is what our education looks like, and it's why your kids can't read. One of the signals that social workers have chosen reactionary options is their discomfort over the consequences of change, their distrust of the new, and sometimes impossible to hide, their fears of losing social status. This is white fragility all over again, only way before it. There is no room in their methodologies for communication, critical reflection, creativity, or collaboration. If it was Robin D'Angelo, she'd be saying they don't have the racial stamina to do the work of, you know, racial discomfort or whatever. They don't have the racial humility to absorb that they aren't the racial uh, archetype for humanity. There is only room for ostensible manipulation. There's your iron law evoke projection again. Indeed, a reactionary social worker can't be interested in individuals developing a critical view of their reality, that is, and they're thinking about what they do while they actually do it as Marxists. It doesn't add that part, but I do. This returning to perception on perception, conditioned by reality, doesn't interest a reactionary. So now it's even, it's the same thing Robin D'Angelo does. The Kafka trap is here. Either you're one of us or you are secretly and trying to hide it as you do uh, part of the problem. And if you try to say, no, I'm trying to help, but I believe in the methods, they say that you're just being reactionary and you just don't want to be found out because you don't want to lose your social status. It's the exact same. And again, this is what they're trying to turn education into. You're either 100% the Freyerian method or you're this. This guy is a total fraud. Though in their, sorry, though their own thoughts, man, I can't even read today. I'm a reactionary, apparently. Through their own thoughts and actions, people can see the conditioning of perception in their social structure, and in this way, their perception begins to change, even though this does not yet mean a change in the social structure. So Marxism, the change happens within the subject first, and then the subject creates into the world his object and sees himself in the object he created. How? Through admiration of, oh, wow. Speculation, I mean, admiration, I mean, subject-object dialectic. Wow. Okay. Let me read that again. (laughs) Through their own thought and actions, people can see the conditioning of perception in their social structure, how how their social relations are limited, in Marxist language, by the existing, or sorry, how their subjectivity is limited by the existing social relations and their position within it. And in this way, their perception begins to change. They get to awaken as victims, as oppressed, even though this does not yet mean a change in the social structure. Because first, as Lukács instructed, and Freire is ripping off of, they will have to realize, and Lukács was just telling people what Marx said, first, they're going to have to realize their condition, that's the awakening of the class consciousness, That's their perception beginning to change, even though this does not yet mean a change in the social structure. Then they have to go to the next level of consciousness, of deeper critical consciousness, in which case they understand their role against the whole through admiration, in other words, or speculation. In other words, they understand themselves as the agents of change through through class solidarity, and then they can begin to act. It's important, he says, to appreciate that social reality can be transformed. 
that it is made by men and can be changed by men. Man creates society that creates man that creates society that creates man that creates society until finally there's enough of a change. So social man emerges, the state is no longer needed, and we arrive at communism. It is important to appreciate that social reality can be transformed and that it is made by men and can be changed by men, that it is not something untouchable, a fate or destiny that offers only one choice, accommodation. It is essential which is what the social worker might normally teach. How do you accommodate yourself to the world that you actually live in? See, the Marxists, why did Marx say that religion was the sigh of the oppressed people and the opium of the masses? Because it's religion is a story people tell themselves to just justify why it's just the way that it is. A lot of the ideologies he described were saying that, you know, and we hear this in Ferraris, the illiterates are convinced that, oh, well, we're just inferior people, or we're just not good enough, or we didn't work hard enough, or we didn't learn to read, or whatever it happens to be. So we have to accommodate this social order, but we could be changing the social order because man makes society, makes man makes society, makes man makes society until you get to the utopia, as long as the conscious sees direction of it, because otherwise dominance is self-reproducing. This is a Marxist theology. It is essential that the naive view of reality give way to a view that is capable of perceiving itself. That fatalism, say in a mirror, like speculating, that fatalism be, which they say comes from religion, God ordained it to be this way, so it is this way, and that's just how it is. That fatalism be supplanted by a critical optimism. There's your critical hope, by the way. This is what Freire brings to the table, as I said before, that made him such a big religious figure. That fatalism be supplanted by a critical optimism that can move individuals toward an increasingly critical commitment for radical change in society. A reactionary social worker is not interested in any of this. But what this is saying is that the right way to be a social worker is to induce in people a consciousness that if they realize who they are in terms of class oppression and realize that they are a class and gain solidarity as a class and realize the class's role in changing society, that man makes society and can change it. It can be transformed. Your oppression isn't permanent. There is no permanence of permanence. All you have to do is awaken to the consciousness. So a social worker shouldn't be teaching people to cope with life the way that it is or even to get strategies to climb out of their dependency through, say, a personal responsibility model like the original SEL that social workers could have could have. Uh, helped him uh, employ. No, they should instead be using a dependency model where you teach people to be sol- uh, to find solidarity and to blame the entire, entire social order and the people who benefit from it and thus allegedly maintain it for themselves and not everybody else, that you become resentful of those people and try to overthrow their system. That would be an increasingly critical commitment for radical change in society. And this critical optimism is the thing that Freire brings to the table, which is this hope that this can work. It's sometimes called, like I said, critical hope. And there are entire books, like by Megan Poehler, written about critical hope. And this is the religion, this is the Hebrews. This is like Hebrews 11 of, um, of Marxism, which is what, this is what Freire is bringing. Let me actually read the verse. I got to find it. I did not intend to read Hebrews 11.1 1 in this podcast. Let me look it up real quick and get the wording exactly right. Hebrews 11.1. 1, now, this is a KJV, so it's going to be wild. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, imagine if, for example, the thing hoped for was a communist utopia. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And you don't see it. It's not there in the world. In fact, that's exactly what he was saying. Perception can begin to change even though the social order doesn't begin to change. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This 
critical hope is Hebrews 11.1 for the Marxist theology. That's why people are so committed to it. They see, they have faith. They have the hope of the thing that, that you can't see. They think that it can happen, that it can work, that they will work. They can work. All it takes is enough critical commitment. Why? Because critical optimism, that the, he says the fatalism must be supplanted by a, which religion allegedly gives you in its model of faith. Fatalism must be supplanted by a critical optimism that can move individuals toward an increasingly critical commitment for radical change in society. In other words, that they become the kind of people who see their class in terms of its class consciousness, which is to say its state of oppression where the where the movement begins and then its need for class solidarity and then eventually its role as a class in changing all of society. Again, this is where Kimberly Crenshaw said that I am black as opposed to I am a person who happens to be black. This is where you can see the exact same idea. I am a person who happens to be black strains for a certain universality in effect i am first a person and ignores the fact that race is imposed and treats as though it is non-determinant and contingent whereas i am black becomes not only a positive discourse of resistance but also you know wow i'm quoting this from memory pretty well not only a positive discourse of resistance as in the black nationalist black is beautiful but also a a anchor for subjectivity and the site of a meaningful politic of identity same damn thing and a reactionary social worker or teacher pretending to be a social worker through social emotional learning of the transformative type is not interested in any of this so you need to do better you need to do the work some say that a change of perception is not possible before a change in the social structure because perception is conditioned by society. Remember, society makes man, makes society, makes man. Make, yeah. But this kind of thinking, from an extremist point of view, can lead us to mechanistic interpretations of the relations between perception and reality. On the other hand, to avoid confusion between our position and an idealist attitude, we should say something about something more about this process. A change in the perception of reality can take place before the transformation of reality, if one doesn't attach to the term before a sense of stag of a stagnated time dimension from which one can infer only ingenuous consciousness see you can't rely on linear time you have to break down linear time because in linear time one thing proceeds and follows the next etc etc and you can't possibly have a total view you can't view the whole from a position of linear time the meaning of before here he says is not the usual meaning the word before does not mean a previous moment separated, like linear time, like separated from, an, uh, from another by a rigid boundary. Before is part of a structured transformation process. Perception of reality, then, through the perspective of the dominant ideology, can be changed to the extent that, one, that when one verifies today the antagonism between change and permanence, this antagonism begins to be a challenge. This change of perception, which occurs in the problematizing of a reality and conflict, in viewing our problems in life in their true context, requires us to reconfront our reality. Not sticking to it, we need to appropriate the context and insert ourselves in it, not under time, but already in time. And so, the perception of reality can take place before the transformation of reality. In other words, you can hijack and become conscious of this process of how change is occurring when we let go of the idea, first of all, 
that before means before and after mean what they usually mean and start to see things in an antagonism of a process of unfolding change. And then more importantly, and secondly, when you start to problematize that which exists, this is where he's going to get to is denouncing the existing world. That's problematizing. That's ruthless critique of all that exists for Marx. That's we cannot describe the ideal society, but we can criticize the aspects of this society which we wish to change to more to Horkheimer. That's negative thinking becomes positive by unleashing the positive society contained within the existing society for Marcuse sounds like, how do all these guys think of the same thing? It's because they're all Marxists and it's not that complicated. It's really not that complicated. And so if you become awake, if you become conscious, if you become critically conscious, you can actually hijack the system of time itself, abolish linear time, and create a trajectory in the talos of history. You can take the unconscious evolution of history and turn it into the conscious evolution of history in a transformative direction toward communism. And that's the role of the proper social worker or teacher. If this kind of effort can't be developed by the, by the reactionary social worker, it ought to be a constant preoccupation for those committed to change. So you have the bad reactionary alt-right social worker who's just trying to help somebody who's got a bad lot in life get their stuff together and co exist and succeed in the existing society, kind of like the educator who wants to teach people to read and do math and be able to be successful in the existing economy, when instead you could have a actually generally committed to change social worker whose job is to awaken a political consciousness and a, and a model for change, never mind teaching skills to read or write or participate or behave in the existing society or be successful because you don't want to be successful in the existing society because the ex existing society sucks according to marxism in fact it's oppressive and evil and needs to be completely abolished and overthrown and given a new one but only by people who become class conscious of their position who can then be the change agents who are going to affect the entire revolution of society that's what they're trying to do and so you can either be the alt right kind of person who just wants to help people survive in a terrible order thus reproducing the order and causing more problems into the future and kicking the can down the road being a total jerk or you could be somebody who's actually committed to change who's not going to teach people any skills except how to complain how to problematize the existing world so that the better world might emerge mm -hmm. now you understand and then he says, between these two different kinds of social worker, and remember teachers and social workers are the same thing because of social-emotional learning, their roles and methods, well, they, I, I should say, not because of social-emotional learning, the way that social-emotional learning is applied in the classroom by teachers in the transformative model where it's now becoming mandated in virtually every lesson, virtually every classroom, by virtually every teacher. Their roles and methodologies, of course, will be different from those of the reactionaries. So the good kind that are not all right have a different approach. And this is what it looks like. First, by claiming that neutrality of action cannot exist, sound familiar? And by refusing to administer to individuals or groups or communities through purely anesthetic forms of action, in other words, doing things that actually help them like learn to read so they can succeed in the existing society or do math or pay their bills or get their lives together or get off drugs or get their lives organized so that they can succeed, whether it's social work or whether it's um, education, it's the same purely anesthetic forms of action, the social worker who opts for change strives to unveil reality, to raise a consciousness of what? Of class position, class consciousness, class solidarity, and the role of the class in producing the utopia. She or he works with, never on, and that's going to be huge. We'll talk about in chapter six, in the, the one of the two podcasts of chapter six, with, never on. In other words, you can't reproduce the power dynamic as a social worker. You have to be a collaborator 
as the modern word goes. You cannot be somebody who is uh, administering. So you can't reproduce the power dynamic. She or he works with, and that's in italics, never on, and that's also in italics, people whom she considers subjects, not objects or incidences of action. And this is actually going to be huge. I've got a whole little thing I need to talk about with this at some point next episode or two, probably this couple episodes, the last one of chapter six. I'm going to probably do this thing I wrote after I read through chapter six. And I wrote this thing about the way all of this comes together with the concept of the idea of learner versus student. And that's going to be a gigantic thing in the next chapter. And here we have it with um, social workers. If you work with both are subjects and subjectivity is the key because the subject is where the imagination takes place and the imagination creates the object and dialectical relationship with the subject and the speculative dialectical wheel, the whole Marxist religion plays out. Whereas if you were to just come in and actually help somebody, you're actually treating them as an object, thus you're alienating them, plus reproducing the existing society, blah, 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 blah. So it's all just reproducing social work and the Marxist dimension. And remember, yet again, because of the way that social emotional learning is implied, is applied now, it is the same. Social worker and teacher are the same. His message is the same. That's why this chapter is in this book. What this as the social worker, so the teacher as or educator. Actually, they're very particular about this language. As the educator, so the social worker. As one who is humble and critical, that they love to position themselves this way, don't they? As one who is humble and critical, she or he cannot attempt the ingenuity embodied in the ready-made idea. Generalize, which is to say, to re- the ready-made idea. The society is this way. You have to learn to succeed in it. Reading works this way. You have to learn to read. Reading is for these purposes. You have to learn to do it. Math is for these purposes and is important to society. So you have to learn math like this. So embodied in the ready-made idea, generalized in such a way that the social worker appears to as the agent of change. Okay, let me read that whole sentence again. As, su- as one who is humble and critical, she or he cannot accept the ingenuity embodied in the ready-made idea, generalized in such a way that the social worker appears as the agent of change. This is why change agents are everywhere in their, their ideas. This, that's what you're supposed to make everybody into is a change, a change agent who's aware of their class status or position. Their positionality must intentionally be engaged. And that includes their position or their role in creating the utopia at the end of time. The end of history, I should say, or maybe the end of linear time, too. This act of refusal is not just for some... Marcuse's great refusal says what? This act of refusal is not just for some of us, but for all who are committed to change. So if you're committed to change, you can't just appear to be making change. You actually have to be fully committed to change. You cannot accept the ready-made idea of anything. You have to overthrow the ready-made of anything. And that is humble and critical attitude, racial humility for Robin D'Angelo, self-critical. Hmm. Sounds familiar for a reason. Remember, Robin D'Angelo is positioned as a critical whiteness educator, an educator, and her books include books for education, like Is Everyone Really Equal and What Does It Mean to Be White? Unlike White Fragility, which is kind of a more corporate and social context. (sighs) The social worker who opts for change does not fear freedom. Remember that the claim is that the person who's teaching people personal responsibility to succeed in the existing society does fear freedom because 
if people are succeeding in the existing society, then they're actually reproducing the existing order and they're not actually free. Or maybe that person enters into the trap of being in the upper class, but they continue to, to, to chain up everybody else. We're not achieving Gnostic freedom where we've overthrown the shackles of the false god that threw us out of the garden, which was our birthright. The social worker who opts for change does not fear freedom, nor will this person prescribe or manipulate. <laughs> yeah, right. But in rejecting prescription and manipulation, this person rejects thoughtless spontaneity as well. Now, isn't this exactly what you hear when they say why we have to have culturally responsive teaching is because that they're rejecting prescription and manipulation, that they are not following a prescribed curriculum, but they're being culturally responsive and sensitive to what's actually going on. Of course it is, because it's just frayery repackaged in identity politics, which means Marxist identity uh, politics, which means identity Marxism. She or he, that's our critical social worker, she or he, I love how it's always she or he through this whole freaking book, knows that all attempts at making a radical transformation of society require a conscious organization of the oppressed, because that's their role. That's what Lukács says. It is literally the role of the proletariat to create the uh, change in society. Why? Because of Rousseau's master-slave dialectic. Only the slave has the position necessary to understand and to convey the knowledge to the powerful people what they need to know in order to change society because they're the ones who actually do the changing of society. She or he knows that all attempts at making a radical transformation of society require a conscious organization of the oppressed and that this calls for a lucid vanguard. That's Lenin. If this vanguard cannot be the proprietor over others, uh, by the same token, it cannot be totally passive. So in other words, it can't be like Stalin. It can't do it wrong. It has to be active. It has to usher the dumb proles through the revolution, but it can't become their overlords. But we need a lucid vanguard. Like what we need is perhaps we need a uh, group of experts that come together in the ski town of the, the Davos to meet to discuss the greatest challenges of the world and figure out the proper path to these grand challenges of it. The velocity and the complexity. We need a great reset that's led by people who are aware of these challenges and what we might do about them because there are crises that we face are existential. Now, this whole vanguard in the World Economic Forum, we need that. The corporate corporations, banks, and the, what is it, the techno, uh, the financial techno, tech, what is it, uh, finance, financio techno, I don't know. It's big tech and the finance industry are in this gigantic kind of collusion hooked up through the World Economic Forum to create the public private partnership of government and private entities. It will be the Vanguard, literally the biggest one or second biggest one of these banks is called Vanguard. What a weird coincidence that is. And they are going to lead us through the Great Reset to the better, better future, the sustainable circular economy, and for a sustainable and inclusive future. Hmm, really weird. Really weird. If this vanguard cannot be the proprietor over others, the same by the same token, it cannot be totally passive. It must use nudge theory to propagandize the people into following along with what it's going to do, and to signing up for things like central bank digital currencies, and for giving people all the data through the social emotional learning data mining so that they can create the model by which they can nudge the people and convince them. Hmm. Freyerian model gets deep. Moreover, Freyeri tells us, it would be illusory to think that with this line of reasoning, a social worker could move freely as though dominant groups weren't alert to the need for defending their own interests. 
Along with the idea that certain changes of an obviously reformist character are needed, there are some real cautions. It is most important for social workers to recognize the reality they confront, and its viable history as well. In other words, we should recognize what can be done in any given moment, since what we do sorry, since we do what we can and not what we would like to do. This means we need to have a clear understanding of the relationships between tactics and strategy, which are unfortunately not always seriously considered. So Freire is telling us straight up that a social worker, just to summarize, that's the end of the chapter, that a social worker, like a teacher, and a teacher, like a social worker, because they're basically the same thing, especially in your kid's school under the brand name of transformative social-emotional learning, or the CASEL model, has to raise a political literacy, historical Marxist historical literacy, and that they it's not going to be enough for them merely to try to blindly raise class consciousness. They need tactics. They need strategy. They have to use some kind of a plan because there will be pitfalls, and the dominant groups are going to try to seize the opportunity to take this over from within, control it, and to undermine it, and to make uh, social workers want to be reactionary, and teachers want to be reactionary by teaching the modes of the existing society instead of teaching revolutionary consciousness. Revolutionary consciousness, therefore, includes a lot. It means that you have to be class conscious of your position within the class hierarchy, which might be economic class, but it might also be social class, like where you are in the racial hierarchy or the intersectional hierarchy more broadly. Intersectional uh, thought is identity Marxism and positionality within that must be intentionally engaged, they tell us. So you have to be conscious of the hierarchy. This is what woke means, by the way. You have to be conscious, of, and for area in education is to induce wokeness. And this is what woke means. You have to be conscious in the Marxist sense of the hierarchy, of your position in the hierarchy, of what solidarity in the hierarchy means, of the role that you play in the revolution so that you can get to the end of history in the perfect society and the strategy and tactics by which that can be done. So in other words, your education, according to Paulo Freire, whether that's by a teacher or by a social worker, whether that's in the context of education or in the, in the context of intervening with the uh, social outcasts, the poor and the unemployed, as Marcuse had it, I wonder why this chapter is in here, or both at the same time under the auspices of transformative social-emotional learning, that you have to be actually training these people to be Marxist revolutionaries. It's not enough for them to know who they are constantly in a Marxist way. They have to also know what the position or what their role is in changing and creating history, and they also have to understand the tactics and strategies of Marxist revolution to be able to do it. And that becomes the point of education, and that is what you actually see happening in our schools. And the reason has a name, and had an address until he died, and its name is Paulo Freire. And the person who introduced this shit into our society has a name, and his name is Henry Giroux. He didn't work alone. There were some priests uh, in the both American and Brazilian context who were liberation theologians who helped facilitate this. Henry Kissinger actually was Secretary of State, wrote the formal invitation letter to get Freire brought to the United States. Um, Kissinger I don't know his relationship to Dom Helder Kamara, but Dom Helder Kamara, as we mentioned in the previous episode, was actually the mentor to Freire, but also to Pope Francis, but also to Klaus Schwab. And he, Henry Kissinger was also the mentor to Klaus Schwab. And so we have these weird connections of people kind of tied all up in here, right? 
Freire and Klaus Schwab and Zewald Economic Forum have this weird tie through this priest, Dom Hilder Kamara, and also through Henry Kissinger. Um, very strange, very strange stuff. And so why is all this stuff happening? What's well, happening in education? Well, now you hear it. It could not possibly be more explicitly Marxist. The goal is to reorient social work, reorient education, fuse the two into the same program because real literacy, real education is Marxist social literacy, historical literacy, or education, which means being aware of your class consciousness. And your class consciousness means your position, which also means your understanding of your role in, cre in creating the Marxist revolution and the tactics by which that's to be done. So the goal here, the Freirean model, is to, by every means, make education about awakening that full Marxist consciousness, including of revolutionary tactics, as he just said, tactics and strategy, which are unfortunately not always seriously considered. So now you understand even more deeply. Just wait till we read through in two episodes of the exciting New Discourses podcast um, critical education series where we are going to deep, deep, deep dive repeatedly on Paulo Freire until we get through it. Wait till you read, wait till we read through chapter six. And then I, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, wait till we read through chapter eight of this book. Your brain is going to melt as to how in the world, our, remember this was supposed to be the thesis I wanted you to keep in mind, the question I wanted you to keep in mind as we go through all this. How in the world did we allow this to become our education system? How in the world were we so asleep that we allowed this to become our education system? How did we not purge this crap in the 80s and block this crap in the 80s? How on earth did we slip? from 1918 or whenever it was that the public education system was formed, largely on the back of work of people like John Dewey and Thorndike and uh, uh, what's his name, Counts, who based a lot of it off of the Soviet model. How in the world did we go from then to in 1985 adopting all of this completely and revamping our entire education model? Because now you're starting to see what it really is by somebody who's taken the time to read it and its intellectual precursors well enough to understand it. How in the world have we allowed this? And then the next question is, what in the world are we going to do about it? Because these people are legion. They are absolutely entrenched. They are absolutely dominant in our education programs, colleges of education, accrediting bodies, schools. Every teacher graduated in the last 15 years has been indoctrinated in this, whether they believe it or not. What are we going to do to get this garbage out because you now see what it is and if you see what it is you see what its agenda is and if you look throughout all of history you see what happens when these agendas are tried to put try to be put into practice the possibly hundred million dead in china should be a pretty good testament in realizing that when they put this into the schools with social worker psychological social emotional learning so-called education models that what they are actually achieving is a catastrophe of global proportions, of historic proportions, using your children as the vehicle to do it. So what are we going to do about it? We start by understanding it. So thank you for listening. <laughs>